destroy me and end up happier than ever? No way. He doesn't get to win. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. The census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Gina! <laughs> but I don't care, darling. Because I love you. Why do you eat people? Not people. Brains. I can feel myself rotten. Now, Sid, don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. A boy's best friend is his mother. Hello, welcome once again to Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, Volume 5. This is a podcast in which I, co-host Philip of the Dark Discussions podcast, among others, reviews various cult and midnight movies that have been released by boutique label releasing Blu-ray and DVD companies. Such companies of note would be Vinegar Syndrome, Mondo Macabro, Code Red, Arrow Releasing, Vestron, Criterion Collection, 88 Films, Massacre Video, and many, many others. That is just a beginning. Basically what I do, I simply have a number of Blu-rays and DVDs of cult, horror, sci-fi, thrillers, speculative fiction films, and I decide to basically, instead of just watching them, uh, give a quick review, uh, maybe 15 to 20 minutes um, background to the film, the filmmakers, the actors, and so forth, and discuss in context whether the release is good or not. So not only do I uh, review the film, but I also review whether or not the movie presentation, meaning it's remastering, uh, for example, if it's Blu-ray, the high-definition remastering or scanning, or if it's a shot on video or lower-level film, uh, its presentation compared to, say, prior releases. I also talk about the extras on the discs and what you can find and whether or not it is worth a purchase. A lot of these films are films that are somewhat obscure, that have not gotten a good release until recently. They were midnight films that played at drive-ins on 42nd Street in New York City, uh, were considered grindhouse or cult films, or as I've already stated, midnight movies, and therefore many 
have been forgotten until recently when they have been picked up by these boutique label companies and given a proper release. Some folks have stated that they would never thought such films would have gotten a Blu-ray release with fantastic extras, but as folks have discovered, a lot of these midnight movies and genre films that have been ignored or laughed at actually do have not only entertainment value, but also artistic value as well. And as I state sometimes on the Dark Discussions podcast that I do, I am going to speak intelligently on a genre that deserves intelligence, which is cult cinema. It has been overlooked way too long, and this is my little space on the internet to give these film some note. Tonight, I'm not quite sure how many films I will be reviewing. Uh, some of these recordings were recorded on different days, since each are independent 15 to 20 minute reviews. But depending on how long each is will determine whether I do four, five, six movies on this episode. Alright, so this month, unfortunately, there were no emails or feedback. Uh, you haven't uh, received anything, so as a result, uh, this intro is, is fairly short. But I do hope you uh, enjoy it. Uh, if you do want to leave feedback, please email darkdiscussions at AOL.com where you can give your feedback, suggestions, uh, films that you would like uh, spoken of, uh, any cult films that you hear will be released that should be mentioned for f other fans just like yourselves. And also, uh, you can find me or the podcast on darkdiscussions.com since Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews is a podcast in the Dark Discussion, in the dark discussion feed. However, if you do go to Google Play or iTunes or Stitcher, not only can you find Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews under Dark Discussions Podcast, it is also under its own feed, Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. So if you do not want to receive the other podcasts in the Dark Discussions Network, you can simply join the RSS feed for Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. Alright, thank you for uh, listening to the podcast, and uh, let's get into our first film. The film that I'm going to review now is actually a French production. It was released in 2002, and it is now on DVD only, at least in the United States, under a boutique label called First Run Features. FirstRunFeatures.com is the website where their uh, products can be found if you don't want to go to online retailers. 
Now, uh, this film here, um, as I stated, was produced uh, and released by First Run Features. Um, uh, let me give a little bit background of this company, since this company isn't a well-known um, boutique label, necessarily. Uh, and this is what it says, actually, right on Wikipedia about the company, and I'll just read the first paragraph of Wikipedia. It says, First Run features an independent distribution company based in New York City. First Run was founded in 1979 by a group of filmmakers in order to advance the distribution of independent film and is one of America's largest independent distributors of documentaries and art house films. Releasing 12 to 15 films a year in theaters nationwide and 40 to 60 titles on DVD and video on demand annually. First Run distributes a large number of documentaries and foreign films, including many films about LGBT issues, Jewish experience, and political and human rights issues. Now, um, some of that uh, may apply to this film here, Secret Things, uh, though it's not a LGBTQ film necessarily. Uh, there is some aspects there. It is most certainly a foreign film. So... Uh, it is not surprising that this company, First Run Features, has picked it up. The film, once again, Secret Things, from 2002, is considered an erotic thriller, and it's directed by a man named Jean-Claude Brousseau. The film stars two main actresses, Sabrina Seveco and Coralie Revel. Uh, other Folks in the film of note are Roger Mermont and Fabrice Deville and Blandine Burry. Uh, these are all obviously French actors and actresses. Uh, not many of them, or any of them to be honest, I know. Again, this is already a 15-year-old film, uh, which makes uh, many of these actors and actresses um, in, I guess, a different group of roles than they would have played back in 2002. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen any of these in any other films, so my uh, guess is that um, they may just work in France. Um, I, I won't go into f much of their background because, again, I, I don't know anything about the people who starred in this film. Uh, I will talk a little bit about uh, the director, however, uh, since uh, many of his films have actually crossed over to um, English language uh, nations for distribution. Uh, Jean-Claude Brousseau, uh, he is a 73-year-old man now, I believe. Um, uh, his two most famous films internationally are Secret Things and The Exterminating Angels. Exterminating Angels, I do have a copy of, have, though I have not watched it yet. Uh, and that was actually an official selection of Khan's Film Festival in 2006. And has been released by IFC Films, um, Independent Film Cinema. And uh, so it has, his, his movies have gotten a fairly well distribution uh, um, in the States. Um, another film of note that he uh, recently did in 2008 is a film called A La Aventure, and that film um, 
is another one that uh, is widely available in uh, English language nations. Uh, so those are the three films that I know of. I do not have a la aventure, though I have seen it available everywhere. And its cover reminds me of a film from the 1950s because it has a La Dolce Vita type of um, feeling. However, I don't know much about that film. Now, um, his his uh, his history is is quite interesting for the fact that um, he actually had been um, charged, unfortunately, for sexual harassment at one time back in 2002, and specifically for this film that I'm going to review called Secret Things. Um, unfortunately, um, it's it's um, very vague that term sexual harassment because he did not do what that term would sound like to people basically what it was is when he was doing uh, auditions for this film here secret things um, the lot of actresses came in for parts for extras because there's a big scene at the end of the film similar to uh, the film Eyes Wide Shot by Stanley Kubrick or from um, the television show The Leftovers and Westworld which both have episodes where orgies occur uh, as noted Eyes Wide Shut by Stanley Kubrick does as well and so when he was casting for that scene and he brought in the actresses to do so, he required these women uh, to yeah, obviously uh, strip, and um, three of, of the women claimed that he uh, asked them to, I guess, be a little more sexual in the audition in front of him rather than just being nude, uh, specifically because of the parts that he was going to um, fill. Um, and these women obviously felt uh, upset about this, um, and they brought him to court. He was charged with sexual harassment as a result, um, and he uh, eventually was found guilty and fined and given a suspended one-year sentence. However, he has argued uh, considerably that he did no wrong, especially since the parts these women were coming to audition for happened to require nudity and, uh, since it was an orgy scene, simulated sex. And so what he claimed he asked them to demonstrate in the addition he felt was not necessarily out of line. However, the courts said otherwise, and so is the case. Uh, with that stated, um, Jean-Claude Rousseau is considered um, a important film director in France. He is uh, one of their uh, important art house film directors and he happens to have uh, films that 
have uh, gotten much note, as I stated. Uh, he's been uh, selected for cons and such. Now, uh, this film here, uh, The Secret Things, um, I guess I can read the back of the disc jacket. Uh, once again, this is a DVD and not a Blu-ray. Um, to my knowledge, First Run Features only releases their films in the United States as DVDs, not Blu-rays. But anyway, um, I will read what it says. Uh, so, this is Secret Things, and this is what it says in the back. Two young women discover the power of sex to get what they want in the male-dominated business world. Natalie, a performance artist stripper, instructs her new friend, the beautiful but inexperienced Sandrine, on the art of seduction. Without delay, they put their skills to the test at a Parisian bank where both rise to the top. But they meet their match in the ruthless son of the bank's president, a vain, unbridled, power-hungry monster. Uh, so, yeah, this is definitely a thriller. Uh, and since it um, is a, uh, a um, I guess, a film where sexual politics are part of it, uh, it would be called an erotic thriller. Um, other things on the jacket of this uh, film, it says Film of the Year at Cahiers du Cinema. Um, this is some good reviews from uh, very important uh, places, such as uh, a splendid erotic thriller, well-made, well-acted, cleverly written. Uh, Roger Ebert, Chicago Sun-Times. Deliciously fevered, merciless, and darkly funny, the Los Angeles Times. A seriously sexy treatise on male-female power games. Carly Ravel is a stunning fiend. Brousseau has the courage and kinkiness of his convictions. Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, the San Diego Metropolitan Magazine says, An extremely erotic film which is amazingly a feast for both brain and eye. And the San Francisco Weekly says simply, in a word, delicious. Uh, also the St. Louis Dispatch, the Austin Chronicle, the New York Times, Variety all have uh, blurbs on the cover. And um, the film has generally received positive reviews. It's 112 minutes with French with English subtitles. Um, now, the film is an interesting film because it's marketed as a co-starring feature between the two lead actresses, uh, Sabrina Sevecoy and Carly Ravel. Uh, one of them plays a exotic stripper at a um, adult entertainment club, while the other is a bartender at the club, uh, and she too is as attractive as um, the stripper. She happens to lose her uh, place of residence, and the stripper invites her to move into her apartment, and they become roommates. Uh, but from that point on, the film changes considerably because after about a 10 to 15 minutes of where the two women decide that they have to change professions because of 
um, the, the bad treatment they feel they are receiving at the adult entertainment complex, they decide to use their attractiveness and um, sexual um, desire that they get from men to get what they want. And the two of them look through the newspapers and whatnot. This is 2002, so the internet wasn't uh, prominent yet. And they find jobs as, I guess, um, not receptionists, but uh, office managers at a bank. And not just a bank where you would go in to get money and transfer money and whatnot, but the actual headquarters in a giant office building in a major city, most likely Paris. Um, so they, they were actually in uh, the headquarters. Um, but at that point, the movie definitely changes because then the film is really one person who stars in the film. Uh, the girl that played the bartender, her the actress's name again is Sabrina Sevecoy, becomes the nominal and point of view lead of the film. Now, uh, obviously, I'm not going to uh, spoil or give any uh, spoilers of the film, uh, but I will talk a little bit about the plot and. Uh, what seems to be said in the film. Um, the film, basically, the two girls, one uh, becomes the office manager in the human resource department, and that would be the stripper. Her character uh, becomes secondary, while the other, the one that originally was the bartender, becomes the office manager of um, uh, one of the financial uh, loan departments of the bank. Um, slowly but surely, she rises through the the um, the ranks and becomes um, more important. Eventually, uh, becomes um, the manager's or the or the the, the, the vice president's uh, secretary. Um, and from this point on, she begins to have some influence with the company. Now, within the company, there's power plays because the owner of the bank is fairly old. His number two man uh, has worked for him for 20 to 30 years. However, the owner of the bank has a son who is third in command and if the man retires there could be a power struggle between the son and the right hand man but the problem here is is that the son is a playboy uh, so he um, is a hedonist um, he's known to have 
dated and done the rounds with some of the most beautiful socialites and women and strippers and um, burlesque actresses from the greater Paris area. Yet, he's not stupid or lazy or addicted to anything that would cause him to not be able to perform his duties as an executive at this bank. So, he's a loose cannon because not only is he a hedonist and maybe even a sociopath, but he is also smart, cunning, and stable. Now, the lead actress, the girl that was the bartender, um, as I, I discussed earlier, she and her friend or roommate said they wanted to use men to get what they want. And so, within the company, various people within the company, men, executives, and people in power, they use their feminine uh, skills to get further in advancement. Uh, sometimes it leads to things that um, one would call immoral, while others times it may just be uh, a fling. So uh, you, you can you can see as as you go when you watch this film, based off of if they have uh, relations with a married person versus a single person. Um, now there's uh, so, some side plots um, between the two girls and their own, um, I guess. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, their own competition between themselves. Um, because though they're friends, they do have some um, mutual competition to see how each can do. And they both work for different departments. Eventually, um, there are some scenes where they themselves find each other attractive. There's scenes where they use that to their advantage to get other people at the company that like each of them individually jealous. But in the end, um, it's mostly used as a way to be uh, or, or get more power at the company. Um, now, is it feasible that two women who seem to have no uh, business skills or college education to have moved up so quickly? Uh, again, this may take some time, you know, through through a few months and whatnot. But could, could a stripper and a bartender become high-level employees at a major corporation that quickly? Um, well, probably not. Uh, the, the women are absolutely gorgeous. So 
it, it could be believed that they would attract a lot of attention from those of the opposite sex. However, even so, it would seem a little difficult to believe that they could become, uh, I guess, that powerful within a year's time at a organization such as a multi-corporation bank, especially if they don't have any um, true skill set prior to uh, their employment at the adult club. However, the film is somewhat of an allegory as well, because there is a few scenes um, that are not supernatural, but um, laid on top of the main story. Every so often we see a magical type creature, animal, that symbolizes something, and I won't get into details with it, because, again, you should see the film and make your own judgment. But that is enough to let me know that, okay, this is more an allegory rather than a um, honest film about the dealings of men and women in the business place. Um, the thing of note uh, I wanted to bring up is that... Um, there is points in the, the film where, especially our lead woman, uh, the lead girl, the one that used to be the bartender, has thoughts and feelings for um, the people she may or may not play with, as in play with meaning their, their feelings and, and so forth. So um, th th she's definitely not a sociopath. Um, and I, I don't believe the, the one that played the stripper was either. So each of them have their motives, but at times it's unclear, except for the fact that they want to be, um, I guess, independent or not worry about being taken advantage of by someone else, no matter what the gender is. Um, now... The film is somewhat marketed as a gender political film, but honestly, um, it can be looked at completely different than that. And I think that's the case because, um, as a a, uh, a male, um, I could empathize with the woman, at least the lead woman as much as I could empathize with some of the male characters in the film. And uh, the film uh, I watched just about a month ago, so I haven't rewatched it since. Um, and there were a few items of note that really made me see this film as more uh, a story of the human condition, no matter what the gender, even if uh, the gender and obviously um, um, sexual attraction between genders are our main themes of the story. So anybody who is looking for a film about gender politics, 
uh, will most certainly get what they want. Though folks who are looking for a really good erotic thriller, the gender politics, politics, uh, no matter, it it won't won't ruin the experience because the film can be looked at in um, a different set of glasses. You can look at the film with a different set of glasses and see this film as more than just a comment on gender and gender stereotypes and gender in the workforce. Now, is the film good? Well, honestly, I, I think it is really good, actually. Um, I think it's a solid thriller. Um, it's definitely, as as they say, it is an erotic thriller. There's there's a lot of nudity and um, um, what I, I guess they would call softcore sex scenes. Uh, but it is, in my opinion, an R-rated film. It um, is a thriller because it definitely does have a mystery. Um, it has twists. Uh, the ending is, is is just absolutely fantastic. Um, and the character that you would least likely think uh, would have changed changes the most and that character that changes the most their um, uh, their motivation throughout the film we find out was a complete lie in the first place or if not a lie they change their motivations uh, as the circumstances change in their life. So a lot of things happen that are unexpected in this film. Um, the the movie um, holds up from beginning to end. Uh, it does feel episodic because there's the beginning when the two girls um, break out of their prior lives and how they set up their future lives and then it breaks into th maybe two or three more uh, s I guess acts because uh, one girl becomes the prominent lead and her story changes from um, secretary to um, high-level employee in the bank to finally we're at the last act she happens to um, have to do something that requires her to uh, live a different life for a bit and I won't say what that is and then the coda is so incredibly awesome that um, it, it makes the film all in all uh, satisfactory as a drama and thriller. So I would highly recommend this film. I don't know if it is on video on demand, but it is definitely on disc. The disc is fairly inexpensive. It can be purchased for under $15 pretty much anywhere. The film, once again, is called The Secret things or are actually just simply secret things. Now if um, you are into 
foreign language films, you shouldn't have a problem with it because, again, this is a film you can't watch while it's in the background simply for the fact that you have to read subtitles. However, it's good enough or great enough that you would not want it to be a background film anyway because the story itself is very intriguing. So uh, that's pretty much the review for this film. Uh, once again, Secret Things, released by First Run Features and directed by Jean-Claude Brissot. The item I am going to review now is actually a television show and a cartoon or animation. Uh, basically this is called Prison School. It is a Japanese anime which has been released in Japan in 2015, however came out in the USA in 2016. Uh, the reason I'm doing an anime instead of a regular movie is simply for the fact that a lot of crossover happens between anime and horror and cult films. Prison School is a anime that has 12 episodes for a total of 240 to 260 minutes or about four to four and a half hours of viewing material. Each episode is approximately 20 to 25 minutes and as stated there were 12 and it is a series and it was released on Blu-ray by a company called Funimation, Funimation.com. The original release was by a company called JC Staff, which was the studio in Japan that released this anime. Anime, unlike in the US, uh, is major programming on Japanese television, where cartoons are actually as important and as viewed as regular normal live action shows. Uh, the difference is that animation over in Japan comes in many forms from children's and toddler shows all the way to uh, R-rated material. This show here, Prison School, is most certainly an R-rated television show. Uh, the JC staff uh, basically then license off the show to companies in other nations and that is where we have Funimation. Funimation is a company in the US that releases numerous Japanese programming especially anime. Uh, Funimation based off of what it says on Wikipedia and I shall read this is Funimation is an American entertainment, anime, and foreign licensing company based in Flower Mound, Texas. The studio is one of the leading distributors of anime and other foreign entertainment properties in North America alongside a number of other companies. The most popular property is Toei Animation's action-adventure series Dragon Ball Z, which had a successful run on Cartoon Network. So uh, the company um, is been around for um, since 1994 under uh, numerous 
names. Uh, the original name was Funimation Productions, and then Funimation Entertainment, and now it's called Funimation. Um, the company actually has a CEO na uh, named Jen Fukunaga. Uh, Jen Fukunaga uh, is is the basically the CEO and is actually a Japanese American entrepreneur, and uh, he saw um, how animation, specifically anime, is huge in the United States. It does get a lot of play on such shows uh, or channels as Cartoon Network, but has been around for years in the United States from things like Star Blazers. So uh, f many folks probably know of uh, Japanese anime. Uh, Prison School is a show that I discovered through a magazine called Otaku. Otaku is an American uh, magazine that focuses on Japanese uh, anime uh, and and other cultural things, but mostly anime. Uh, does reviews and and uh, critiques of anime shows. Most of them, I would say, are genre related. So science fictions, horror, thrillers, techno thrillers, and whatnot, with uh, some additional comedy elements. And they do talk about Godzilla and uh, Japanese bands, cosplay. Uh, things of that nature. Um, oh, Taco, uh, a year or two ago, uh, did a major article on prison school and discussed how it was something of note. Uh, the reviewer actually liked it a lot. Um, the magazine Otaku is on the internet, but it also has a paper edition, and I read this in uh, the paper edition of the magazine. Uh, I interest immediately was interested in the show because it seems like a um, midnight movie type of uh, show. Uh, some of the better ones that I've seen in the past few years uh, would be things like Ergo Proxy or High School of the Dead. I am not necessarily a huge anime fan. Uh, however, I do, as noted, uh, a review and and uh, look out for good ones because, again, many of them do cross over to uh, genre and midnight uh, film type uh, fan base. Uh, so uh, I do check those out as they come. Um, so Prison School um, is fairly expensive at the moment. Uh, the Blu-ray, since it is uh, a television show, um, it can be anywhere between... 25 to 55 dollars I would guess depending on if you can find it on sale you can uh, find it on any online uh, store and it is ready available there before I get into the show itself let's talk about some of uh, the things of note uh, the first is I'll read the back jacket of the disc and this is what it says prison school they're in for a rough sentence when the prestigious all-girls Hichimitsu Private Academy becomes co-ed, five young men are the first males to attend. But the girls aren't so accepting of their classmates. Despite their best attempts, Kiyoshi and his friends are met with cold shoulders from the girls. So what better way to deal with rejection than a little bit of peeping? When they chance a peek at the girls during bath time, their plan falls apart and they are caught by the underground student council, unwilling to hear any excuses 
the USC enforces an absurd punishment imprisonment. For a month, the boys must live within the school's very own penal system while enduring long, hard, and grueling tasks. But the work is the least of their worries. With the sharp crack of a riding crop, in the harsh discipline from a stiletto heel, it's going to take more than sheer willpower to survive the next month, especially when the ladies of the USC have their own secret agenda, and you thought your high school was rough. And that pretty much uh, is, is an excellent uh, premise, uh, though I'll uh, explain a little more in detail uh, as we go forward. Uh, some of the folks uh, behind this show and uh, whatnot. Um, well, uh, the show is based off a manga. A manga is basically a graphic novel or or a comic book um, by a guy named uh, Akira Hiramoto was the writer, and that came out um, in February 2011 to present because it's an ongoing series. Um, the show was directed by a guy named Tsutomo Mizushima, and he has done uh, some fairly popular animes that I have not seen, but uh, things such as Squid Girl and Blood Sea and Girls Under Panzer and Witchcraft Works are just some of his items that he's done. Also, the adaptation of the show was by a guy named Michiko Yokodi. And Michiki Yakodi has uh, done or been the head script writer for uh, numerous shows such as Red Data Girl, Kobato, Airmaster, Princess Tutu, among others. Um, the show is in Japanese with Japanese. Uh, as the main language and English subtitles, or you can watch it in English. I watched it in English. Since this being a animation show, uh, it really didn't matter, in my opinion, what language was uh, the main language during the watching experience. And since uh, English is uh, better than following subtitles, I went with English, but that is just my opinion. Um, now, the extras on the disc are actually pretty impressive. There's episode commentaries by the English language folks, and they're very familiar with uh, the show, uh, obviously, since they did the English casting. They've watched the show in its entirety, and they are very informative. Uh, it includes uh, two of the male and one of the female uh, voice folks, and uh, they discuss uh, things on, on various uh, uh, episodes on the show. Uh, there's a video commentary as well, and then there's uh, various other things like opening song and closing song without text, commercials for other things, and trailers for other things as well. Um, a lot of anime are famous also not just for their show but also for the, the music both the intro and the exit music and for this show here both are phenomenal a lot of anime have really great songs uh, they really hit the mood of 
the show and uh, this here is the case and so if you want to uh, watch uh, the opening credits or the closing credits without text and hear the song uh, these are options on the disc now uh, the show has actually a pretty small number of characters and uh, let me let me talk about who they are so uh, there's five boys that are brought into the school uh, the school as dated was once an all-girls school but as most places know uh, with all the competition and whatnot um, opening up the school to all genders and whatnot are is probably a smart thing to do so the school becomes a co-ed school these are the first five uh, males to be part of the school uh, their names are Kiyoshi who's the lead character Takahiro Shingo, Joji, and Riji. Uh, these are the five boys. The st Underground Student Council, which is the three folk who run um, the prison, basically. Um, Mari, Miiko, and Hana. Uh, though Mari is the head or president of the Underground School Council, Maiko is probably the main character and is the vice president of the underground student council. And then Hannah is uh, the secretary or third in command. Uh, now let's, let me talk about the series a little bit and uh, also uh, whether it's uh, something that would interest folks who like midnight movies. Uh, basically as stated, uh, these five kids or boys um, become members of the school they sit at their own table in the lunchroom. They uh, definitely feel as outsiders. Uh, many, many of them um, go up and talk to other students, all uh, women, obviously, since it's all girls' school until then. And they are ignored or, or told to go away. Um, some of the girls are just plain mean. Some are just confused because this is new to them. Um, but as we know, uh, there is always uh, hijinks, and in this case, five boys in high school surrounded by all girls, and many of them uh, we would say are incredibly good looking, they decide to do something stupid, which is um, sneak a peek in the woman's locker room. And so they go ahead to do this uh, they uh, this all happens in the first episode so I'm not really spoiling anything uh, they are on the top of uh, one of the student buildings they uh, send down a camera things don't go as planned someone has to go down there to um, get the evidence fortunately for him he is uh, surrounded by one girl who happens to not have her contacts in and she's blind as the bat without them so she doesn't know that it's actually a, a man that's in the locker room however things do go bad and they get caught it should be noted that the heads of this underground student council were from the beginning searching for ways to get them expelled because they feel that they don't want the school to change 
and they consider uh, the boys as outsiders. So if you can gather, no matter what they do, there is going to be someone there somehow to spy on them. And as stated, they get caught. What happens then is they are brought to the board, which is uh, these three girls. They lose and they are commissioned for one month of prison in the school. Uh, generally the classes will still happen, though it will be in this basement area in the school. So there is uh, a bit of a, a suspension of disbelief because of uh, the prison in a school and also the fact that uh, most of the adults besides the, the headmaster are not really part of the show so it's not as if the students meaning the five boys have any uh, call phone call to get help from their parents and whatnot now the show is very cheeky and very um, adult oriented in the sense that there's a lot of sexual innuendo there's a lot of female nudity or female glaring there is a lot of violence especially against or specifically against the five boys because they are in prison and have honestly no rights and no communication with the outside world uh, the lead girl or the girl that is basically the vice president Maiko she is very very mean and uh, treats them uh, horribly uh, however she is um, drawn as a very voluptuous large bosomed uh, and gorgeous woman so these folks meaning the five boys some of them um, can't get around their head that she is actually their enemy even if she appears to be or, or presents herself as someone that looks fairly um, innocuous innocuous meaning uh, harmless uh, because she is most certainly dressed provocatively so uh, that would make her definitely not innocuous that way and uh, I think that was part of the intent uh, of uh, the show because it is definitely um, a large sexual innuendo in the show as well as uh, part of um, being mean to the boys obviously is to flaunt and so forth. Uh, the show is pretty harsh. Um, there is definitely a lot of uncomfortable moments with uh, the I guess the torture and so forth because these f folks these five kids are, are really treated terribly um, anybody would be arrested if how they were treated uh, was found out um, because the prison is, is just horrendous uh, they're treated terrible um, now there are some parts of the show that are very uh, uncomfortable because of the the um, sexual innuendo um, side stories that that are a bit shocking in a sense but nothing that would be anything more than a hard R rated or at worst um, 
something like Game of Thrones. So, I guess television, cable, uh, network type of TV. Now, um, the show has a various subplots, as I stated, and some of them are how to escape, um, how to undermine the woman and get their rights back uh, of uh, one of the boys, specifically the main lead, um, has a crush on a girl that's not part of this underground council and his uh, way of trying to communicate with her. And so we have um, the, I guess, the, the quote-unquote nerd boy, the one that, that is more into, um, I guess, um, movies and games and things of that nature, uh, coops up a bunch of plans to figure out how and what they can do uh, to get out of this situation. Uh, some, some of the times the, the boys do have splits where they don't cooperate with each other, so that hinders some of their chances of escape or justice. But all in all, uh, the film and show is a pretty solid watch, in my opinion. One thing that is very interesting about the show is the two individuals in second and third command for this underground student council uh, that would be Meiko who's the vice president and the woman who pretty much is the main uh, antagonist because she's uh, the one that basically guards the prisoners and then Hannah the secretary or third in command um, she as well has uh, an important role because she and Kiyoshi have an interesting um, will of minds, but more so of interest, in my opinion, is Meiko. It appears at many points that she may come around and actually not hate the boys, and yet she keeps being pulled back um, and may actually simply be a sociopath rather than anybody with empathy, even if at points it seems that she might. Uh, so I thought that was a very interesting curiosity as well on the show. Specifically, uh, the show uh, is supposed to have a season two coming up. Uh, rumor is, is that would be in October of 2017. However, that may mean in Japan and therefore not make it to the States for a year or two later. So that means uh, we may not even get to see that until 2019 due to licensing and all that. And also, there is an actual live-action television show now for prison school on Japanese TV. I did uh, look up some of the casting to see what the characters, or, or I should say the actors and actresses, looked like. And uh, I think they did a pretty good job based off of what uh, the anime and therefore the manga uh, show. Uh, but I have no idea if that uh, will be able to be um, seen on the U.S., whether it will be coming to the U.S. or European shores, Australia or whatnot. But um, I would definitely check it out if it did. 
and also uh, of interest is uh, will it be a hard R rating as the anime and the graphic novel manga is. So that is uh, very curious as well to ever uh, see it. We'll, we'll, be, we'll get to uh, know. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I have no idea. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, Prison School. Uh, again, it's available everywhere on uh, disc uh, on your online retailers. I did check Netflix to see, and it's not there. Uh, they do have numerous animes, but this one has not made it there yet. Uh, but if folks who want to check it out, uh, it's a little pricey. But again, you're getting uh, a television series rather than just one movie. And uh, so it may be worth checking out, especially if you uh, think this is something uh, that would interest you uh, being um, a midnight movie type of feel that it has. Okay, the film that I'm going to discuss right now is called Death Line. It's a brand new release. It was released on June 27, 2017 by the boutique label Blue Underground. Uh, the film is actually from 1972. Uh, it stars mostly a British cast except for one individual who is an American. I uh, will discuss uh, some of these folks in a moment. Uh, but first, uh, let me discuss a little bit about who or what Blue Underground is. I've mentioned this company once before because I do believe I uh, reviewed some of their films. Specifically, I remember Seven Deaths of the Cat's Eye. And uh, this, this label is by a guy named William Lustig. Uh, he is the creator of the label, or at least the, the main person behind the boutique label. Uh, his importance is uh, of note for a number of reasons. One, he used to work for Anchor Bay Entertainment, which is the company that owns Stars, uh, the cable TV network that had Spartacus and American Gods and a lot of movies and such. Um, but after he left there, he formed this company, Blue Underground. Uh, the importance of William Lustig is specifically for the fact that he is a cult and genre director. Uh, he originally um, did that before getting into what he's doing now, which is preserving and releasing old and forgotten films, cult films, midnight movies, and so forth. His most famous film is uh, the Joe Spinell, Carol and Monroe, Carol Monroe uh, film Maniac from the early 80s. Uh, it was one of the more... Um, uh, important slasher films, I guess, and um, it is actually released by Blue Underground. Uh, other films that he's released under his label have been a numerous uh, Italian giallos, for example, uh, the giallo Torso by Sergio Martini. Um, he's done uh, Jess Franco films such as uh, 99 Woman. Uh, he's uh, released uh, pretty much uh, a, a lot of films every quarter of every year uh, since the inception of the company and most of the stuff that he's releasing now are all Blu-rays. Uh, I know he's working on the Stendhal Effect uh, which is a film by Dario Argento starring his daughter and uh, that film is supposed to be getting a 2017 release in Blu-ray format 
uh, from Blue Underground. Uh, now, uh, the movie Deathline uh, is directed by a gentleman named uh, Gary Sherman. Uh, Gary Sherman, this was his debut feature. He actually wrote the story for the film, and yet he brought in another individual, Siri Jones. Siri Jones, I have no idea here uh, if that's a male or a female. Uh, there's nothing on the individual. Otherwise, uh, the individual um, has only one credit to their name, and it's just this film. Uh, I would assume Siri Jones is most likely uh, well uh, Welsh, but I, I, I have no idea because, again, no information was found. Uh, since this is generally a UK production, even though a lot of folks behind the film that put up the money uh, were Americans, uh, this is a UK film. It was filmed in the UK. All the actors are from the UK except for one individual uh, who I'll uh, discuss in a bit as well. Um, Gary Sherman is not necessarily well known, but uh, he does have a number of credits uh, in genre cinema, including um, the poorly received Poltergeist 3, uh, which oddly is getting a little bit of a re-evaluation as a standalone horror film uh, by some because of its recent release, I believe, by Scream Factory. Uh, it is a film that I probably won't um, purchase, um, but um, at least some folks are actually beginning to, I guess, enjoy it or at least reevaluate it. Uh, some of his other films that of note uh, that he has done of significance, I guess, as uh, Vice Squad, Dead and Buried. Um, he did uh, the film uh, Dead or Alive. And, and a couple other things. Uh, did a lot of uh, television stuff, uh, including um, documentary shows, you know, real crime, drama, or, or not dramas, but re-evaluations re, uh, of, of crimes in the past that they do an hour show and, and talk about them. Um, that's pretty much uh, the background of the director. Um, now, the cast... Uh, are uh, well, it's uh, it's very depressing uh, for a film that's from 1972. Uh, a lot of the cast has now passed away, which is somewhat depressing. Um, technically, the lead is probably uh, the American and the character that plays his girlfriend, but uh, the box art actually uh, promotes two other individuals. Uh, before we talk about all the supporting cast and uh, what are generally the nominal leads. But Donald Pleasance and Christopher Lee are on the box cover uh, for this film. Uh, Donald Pleasance is actually, um, I guess, a lead in a sense, uh, even though it's not his story. He's the inspector. He plays the inspector, uh, Inspector Calhoun, um, in, in the film because there is somewhat of a police procedural here um, some folks have said uh, that this may be his best performance in a horror film uh, which may be true um, obviously Halloween and uh, the uh, Frank Langella Dracula film uh, he's done numerous other horror films as we know uh, he's had a very odd career because he was in some great 
uh, A-list films such as The Great Escape where he played um, The Forger and uh, he was awesome in that film and then as his career or, or roles weren't uh, appearing he went into a lot of B films or cult films or midnight movies as films as you may know and oddly that's what he's remembered for mostly today specifically for John Carpenter's Halloween uh, but he was a, a great actor in his own right if you see some of his films in the 60s prior to his uh, entrance into B-films. Uh, Christopher Lee is also here uh, listed, but oddly it's really just a cameo for about a five-minute period. And um, his name on the jacket or cover of the, the disc is somewhat false advertisement. Uh, it was not a uh, a, ca a check a check role a, a role for him to just cash a check because he's fantastic in the role so, you know such as we see in a lot of films now where Lance Hedrickson or uh, Tony Todd or whatever quote unquote star in the film and they're only there for five minutes and they cash the check and they're gone uh, here Christopher Lee actually is um, a fairly good and high point of the film. Uh, other folks of note, um, well the, the true lead is probably a guy named David Ladd. David Ladd is uh, an American actor, uh, was fairly well known in the 70s and late 60s. Uh, he's the brother of Alan Ladd Jr., uh, the movie producer who uh, has worked on numerous films both genre and not both are the sons of uh, the great actor Alan Ladd um, the whole family is a Hollywood family and actually uh, Alan Ladd Jr. and his father Alan Ladd who unfortunately passed away at a, such a young age of 51 due to a uh, mixing of some uh, legal substances with alcohol um, the, they, they seem like pretty smart folks. They have a, a really good business sense, and uh, they've made, uh, specifically Alan Ladd Jr., uh, made a hell of a lot of money uh, producing films. Uh, David Ladd, though, the star of this film, is uh, interesting, or probably most famous for now, to be the ex-husband of Cheryl Ladd, uh, model, actress, and pro probably most famous for Charlie's Angels, uh, the woman that replaced Farrah Fawcett and actually was on Charlie's Angels uh, from season two to its end run and actually um, was probably, um, um, I guess, oddly, uh, though not as famous as Farrah Fawcett, uh, probably uh, the more accomplished Charlie's Angel uh, because she was there to the end uh, along with uh, the others. Um, so that's probably oddly David Ladd's most famous thing of note today. Uh, his girlfriend in the film is played by an actress that uh, is named uh, Sharon Gurney. Sharon Gurney uh, is an interesting person because she is a very attractive woman and actually a pretty good actress. Um, and yet, after 1972, which is when this film came out, and one or two other films that were all released in 1972, 
she just disappeared. And based off of uh, her movie credits, she had a, a run for about eight years, from the 60s to 1972. And at this point in her career, she's probably at at uh, the most her late 20s. And for whatever reason, she just disappears. Uh, so no more credits anywhere. Um, and that's it. So it's very bizarre uh, because once again she was a pretty uh, uh, Donald Pleasance, the inspector's uh, right-hand man in the film. Uh, he plays a character named Detective Sergeant Rogers and Sergeant Rogers um, is more of a straight man. Uh, and uh, he actually uh, was in a lot of uh, comedy films in the past. Uh, the, there's a, a set of films called Carry On in the UK. I'm not really too familiar with them, uh, but they're like a comedy films that, that go on for a bit. And uh, he actually um, was in a lot of those. Um, it's probably what is most well known for. Um, now, let me read the back jacket of the film first before we explain some of the film. Uh, I've noticed that some of my reviews have been going on for about 30 minutes, so I'm going to see if I can uh, shorten this to about 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, this is what it says on the back of the film jacket of the Blue Underground Blu-ray combo DVD and Blu-ray collector's pack, it says. Uh, Beneath modern London lives a tribe of once humans. Neither men nor women, they are the raw meat of the human race. When a prominent politician and a beautiful young woman vanished inside a London subway station, Scotland Yard's inspector, Calhoun, played by Donald Presence, investigates and makes a horrifying discovery. Not only did a group of 19th century tunnel workers survive a cave-in, but they lived for years in a secret underground enclave by consuming the flesh of their own dead. Now the lone descendant of this grisly tribe has surfaced, prowling the streets for fresh victims and a new mate. Uh, also starring Norman Rosington, Sharon Gurney, David Ladd, Christopher Lee. Um, in this heart-stopping horror classic, co-written and directed by Gary Sherman, originally recut and re-released in the United States as Raw Meat, now Deathline has been freshly transferred and fully restored in 2K from the original uncensored camera negative and comes fully loaded with exclusive new extras produced for this release. Um, okay, so that's pretty much what it says. Uh, one uh, person of note um, is uh, Gene Siskel. Uh, Gene Siskel, uh, the crit critic, uh, probably one of the more important critics of uh, our time, uh, he actually said this film was great. Uh, for folks who don't know who Gene Sisko is, Gene Sisko is a individual who starred on a television show called At the Movies, which used to be on public television, and then later on one of the regular stations, and he and Roger Ebert would review films. Uh, their background is, is that they weren't too keen on each other, they worked for competing newspapers and yet they were smart enough to decide to come together uh, and do this show and both were fairly prominent both worked for prominent newspapers and eventually even though they were not necessarily 
uh, friendly, uh, they did get a good camaraderie there and respected each other a lot. Uh, Siskel's actual um, uh, quote for the film is, Genuine thrills in the best of horror film traditions. Uh, he worked for the Chicago Tribune while Ebert worked for the Chicago Sun-Times. Um, now, uh, I'm sure there's other things. The, the people that, uh, the cinematographer and the music were pretty good. Um, uh, and and the, those folks are some importance. But otherwise, if I continue talking about them, uh, we'll never get to the film. So let's talk about the film first. Uh, basically, um, the film starts off with this English gentleman in a derby and a suit. And he's in the red light district. Uh, doesn't look like he should be there based off of how he is dressed and uh, then he propositions some prostitutes in the subway or the underground London underground or the tube or whatever they call it over there and he is then attacked by a strange or unseen individual our young couple uh, the American student, played by David Ladd, and his girlfriend, uh, played by uh, the, the woman, uh, her name, last name was Gurney. Uh, they see this guy laying unconscious on the steps leading up to the streets, and they go and find a constable, uh, and when they return, he's gone. And that's the beginning of the, the film. Uh, so... Donald Pleasance comes in uh, as an inspector and a sergeant. They question the folks. Uh, they discover that uh, the individual that is missing is an OBE. OBE is an order given by the king, or at, at this time, the queen of England. And this individual is also someone of note in the government. And so his disappearance is not good. And as a result, uh, Scotland Yard or one of the other various um, uh, intelligence service get involved, which is where Christopher Lee comes in, and he wants the case dropped, and that is the setup to the story. Uh, there is a scene where, uh, as it said in the back jacket, um, they bring in a historian. Uh, for the subway systems to um, talk about um, the subway and the underground and whatnot, because as we note, um, he states simply that uh, there was a cave in years ago, 1890, during the Victorian Gilded Age, and people were left to die there and were not rescued because the company that was doing the digging goes out of business. And so the people were just declared dead. Now, uh, 80, uh, 95 years later, are their descendants still there? And, that, and that's the story. Uh, the film was terribly treated in the United States because it was recut and renamed as Raw Meat. Even in the UK, it was treated somewhat unfairly as well because since there are elements of uh, cannibalism, obviously it's a horror film, it's very grimy because it has the red light district, things of that nature. Um, it was marketed as 
a slasher or a scary crazy film when in fact it is more of an art house horror film um, I won't go into spoilers so not to ruin it for folks uh, but the film is more of a character study on a few individuals um, oddly uh, some folks said Donald Pleasance was um, uh, the star of the film or, or the highlight uh, somewhat true, but though I, I don't I don't know if that's the case. Um, he used to always want to get attention on screen, and it's discussed in his um, film Dracula with Frank Langella and Lawrence Olivier, where uh, the commentary commentary there talks about how he always chewed nuts during the film. Here he does something similar, which is he keeps on blowing his nose, um, and it, I felt it was a little bit distracting but this is a minor nitpick and just a curiosity of Donald Pleasance as an actor uh, who would like to get attention and bring attention to himself on screen by doing something a little eccentric and in this case blow his nose uh, almost in every scene. Um, that stated and that out of the way. Uh, this film is actually pretty damn good. It's very unsettling. Um, there is a character um, that is simply called the man and this individual is um, I guess as they said in the back of the, the jacket the last surviving descendant of the people who were lost in the mining or, or I should say the, the cave-in um, the actor that plays him is uh, someone of note uh, named Hugh Armstrong uh, Hugh Armstrong it was a television actor um, and so forth and he too has passed away um, he was probably the strongest piece of this film he plays the quote-unquote cannibal or crazy man um, in a oddly humanistic way and makes some folks fairly uh, interested in his um, plight even if he is quote unquote the bad guy or the villain uh, and he's only the villain because of uh, how he became to be not because of any sociopathic or evil thing however the things that he does or things that are shown in his quote unquote den are very horrific and unsettling and this is what makes this a great horror film. Uh, there's some awesome tracking shots that last for seven minutes, especially when we're introduced to him and his dungeon or den. Um, you can gather this den is an abandoned or unfinished uh, tube station. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's pretty damn spooky. Um, now. Uh, would I recommend the film? Absolutely. Uh, it's an odd film because it feels a little slow and yet it's only an hour and 30 minutes or an hour and 27 minutes. But the thing is, is that the film has a lot to talk about that could have been expanded on too. Because we only glance over uh, the discussion of the subway station and its... Um, uh, history 
and there's a lot there that they could have really gone into but again the, the main focus of the film based off of uh, its final product is to scare rather than to be a character piece or a historical piece on um, the folks um, that are important to the film so uh, that's one curiosity uh, but you should remember this is definitely an art house horror film. It's not a crazy cannibal film like it was portrayed uh, in its advertising. Um, I will state that the presentation is fantastic. It's been a film that has been treated badly on video and digital until now. Uh, there was a release in 2003 in the U.S. Uh, by, I believe, MGM, uh, but now 14 years later, uh, Blue Underground brings it as a fully remastered edition. Um, it is it is solid. Uh, the extras are solid. There's a, a commentary. Uh, there's three interviews with folks, um, and uh, these interviews. So, so there's over over an hour of video extras, um, and of course they have uh, the various other things as well, uh, trailers and and such. Uh, there's a little booklet in here as well that discusses um, the film. The history of the film, the marketing, um, it also has a reversible cover, which is the raw meat poster, and oddly the, the raw meat poster is the cooler poster for sure, uh, and it's also the more exploitative title uh, to make it more look like a midnight movie, uh, though in, in truth it's, it's not as um, exploitation midnight movie as you would think, even though it has its uh, its uh, scary moments and midnight themes. Uh, there's also a bio of Donald Pleasance in here, which is pretty cool, and it talks about his early career as well. Uh, I recommend is to see the movie The Great Escape for a number of reasons. Um, one other thing of note that's very curious too is the man or the cannibal or the monster or whatever you want to call him, the villain, he always screams, mind the door, mind the door. And we believe this is, uh, it's not really spoken of, but in the various reviews and um, the extras, they talk about it, that, you know, this could have been something that was passed down from his the original uh, people who survived the, the um, cave-in. Um, Again, how could there be descendants? Well, the cave-in, it, it's similar to the miners is what it's stated here, is that you have the people who are doing the digging and the construction, which would be the men, and then there would be women there that would bring down water, food, uh, bring uh, people who have been hurt back up to the, the top, things of that nature. So there were women that were in the cave-in as well. Um, but back to the mine, the door thing, he says it so many times at a point that it actually sounds oddly like um, uh, the Game of Thrones character Hodor, uh, you know, hold the door, hold the door, uh, spoiler alert there. Um, and I, I would not doubt that George R. R. Martin may have got that idea, or at least the game show, the, the showrunners of Game of Thrones uh, got the idea from this film as well. Uh, that may be stretching though, uh, but it does sound very familiar. Um, also a note, uh, this film has some things of note that remind me of the Del Toro film Mimic, 
as well as the Christopher Smith film Creep, uh, both subway films where there are things in the in you know uh, down below that may not be so good for us. Uh, another film of note is Chud, C H U D. Uh, just wanted to bring those films up. They all came out after this film, and it would not surprise me if those three films took a little from this. Uh, I do also know that um, uh, Ritual, I think the film, the book is called. Uh, I, I can't remember, but um, uh, the Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child's second novel after the their famous novel Relic is also very similar to this, uh, where there were descendants or homeless people that have become crazy folks that live in the sewers and so forth. Um, so I just wanted to bring all of them up as well uh, because this film, whether intentionally or not, has a legacy uh, for other genre writers and directors. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, Deathline. Uh, once again, it's, it's available right now. You can find it everywhere. Um, right on the top of the jacket, it says Mind the Doors, so obviously something of note. And as I stated, Gene Siskel, genuine thrills in the best of horror films traditions. Uh, so a lost film that has been one of those films that many people have been waiting for a proper release for years now. Uh, cult movie fans have been waiting for years now. Is now here. And that film, uh, also known as Raw Meat, is here and released by Blue Underground under its original title, Death line. So check it out. The film I am going to review now is a 1991 film. It is considered an erotic comedy. It is directed by an Italian director named Tinto Brass, and the film is called Paprika. First off, this film should not be confused with the 2006 Japanese anime motion picture Paprika, which itself is considered a cult classic and midnight movie. This film is actually a live action film directed by, as I stated, Tinto Brass who is somewhat notorious, in a sense, and not because of him. Uh, let me discuss a little bit of Tinto Brass prior to discussing this film. Uh, Tinto Brass, uh, his real name is Giovanni Brass, but he goes by Tinto Brass, is known for a number of important erotic midnight films, erotic meaning... Um, uh, non-X-rated, non uh, but um, hard R-rated type films. Uh, some of his more well-known films are Salon Kitty, The Voyeur, Monomore, Cheeky, Black Angel, All Ladies Do It, Miranda, The Key, among many, many more films. However, 
he's most notable or infamous for the film Caligula. I'll go a little bit in the history of that, but he was brought on to direct Caligula, which starred some important actors, including John Gilgold and Malcolm McDowell. It's from the 70s. Uh, however, it was actually produced by um, the magazine publisher Bob Guccione, uh, probably most well-known for the magazine Penthouse. Unfortunately for Tinto Brass, after he uh, filmed the movie Caligula, the film was then taken by the production folks and re-edited, changed, and then had adult hard-rated scenes inserted into it without the knowledge of Tinto Brass or the major British and Hollywood actors that had starred in the film. So everybody that was part of the film um, basically denounced it and washed their hands of it. Yet, unfortunately for Tinto Brass, this is the film he is most well known for. I personally cannot discuss that film whether it is good or not, whether it was a mistake or not, because I have not seen it. Uh, I am only quoting um, sources that I read throughout the internet. However, Tinto Brass is a well-known Italian director, probably one of the most uh, famous in uh, the last 40 plus years. Um, he was uh, avant-garde director of avant-garde films. He was a director of erotic cinema as well, as I stated. Um, and he actually still lives today. He's the age of 84 and technically is not retired, even though he has not made a full-length motion picture since 2006. Now, his career, uh, as I stated, expands quite a long time and includes a lot of important cult films. Um, now, this film here, Paprika, um, I came across because of the website Blu-ray.com, which reviews Blu-ray films and gives their opinion of um, the extras, basically they do um, reviews of uh, boutique labels and mainstream label Blu-rays and give their opinions on the presentation, the extras, the sound quality, and the overall product. Now, the curious thing about uh, this film here, Blu-ray.com, they actually uh, list this film, Paprika, as Tinto Brass's greatest film. And that's where I had heard about the film. And sure enough, I was able to purchase this film at a local store called Newberry Comics in Nashua, New Hampshire, with a gift card I had. And the reason I did so was specifically for the fact that Blu-ray.com said it was a great film. However, 
they did state that they felt the presentation of the Blu-ray was not as good as it could be, meaning they felt that in the future a better remastering of the film could be possible, and as a result, they were disappointed with the disc, especially since it was the favorite film by Tinto Brass by the reviewer that wrote the review. Before I get into the background of the film and such, and the, the people who star in it, I would like to state that um, I would have to disagree with their opinion, Blu-ray.com's opinion on the presentation of the film. I honestly felt that the presentation and the remastering of the film looked splendid. I didn't notice any of the issues they felt the film had, which simply was um, the film just didn't pop out of the screen like other Blu-ray releases of older films. Uh, to me, it felt uh, excellent. But that itself is different than whether or not the film is a good film. And I'll discuss that in a moment. Before I do, I will uh, talk about uh, the lead actress of the film. Uh, this actress is uh, fairly important, uh, to be honest, because uh, she was somewhat of a sensation in uh, Italy back in the day, and, and, there, and in some ways uh, Europe or continental Europe. Um, her name is Deborah Caprioglio, and she was, at the time of uh, the film, uh, 23 years old. Um, she came to international stardom, not truly because of this film, though this is the film that um, probably uh, helped her, but prior to this film, she became the boyfriend of the much older actor, Klaus Kinski. Klaus Kinski is an individual that many folks probably know. He was an excellent actor, was in major um, productions as a leading man, as well as B-movies as well. He went back and forth. He was known to have or possibly be um, insane. Uh, he, he was a, a strange individual, a very eccentric, some very negative rumors about his personal life uh, are seen. Uh, the first time I ever saw him as an actor was in Dr. Zhivago, where he plays a small role uh, for about 10 minutes in that film uh, as a uh, Russian partisan that has been captured by the Soviets. And his role in that 10 minutes uh, was absolutely splendid. Um, and left a huge impression on me when I saw that film. Um, Dr. Zhivago is directed by my favorite director, David Lean, and I'm sure he had something to do with it, but Klaus Kinski was fabulous in that role. But enough about Klaus Kinski. Uh, the only reason Klaus Kinski is important is because being the playboy that he was and being uh, 650 
40 or 50 years older than uh, this young woman he met named Deborah Caprioglio, um, and he became her her uh, sugar daddy um, is is what uh, is important because that's what brought her to international fame. Uh, she then uh, became an actress, uh, starred in uh, a couple of films uh, with Quith Kinski, as a matter of fact, and then in 1991, at the age of 23, got the starring role of this film, Paprika. Now, as, as I noted, Tinto Brass has uh, done numerous um, midnight films, specifically erotic cinema, erotic comedies, erotic thrillers, and whatnot. And similar to other cult directors, uh, an example would be Ross Meyer, for example. Tinto Brass has a specific type of actress that he usually hires for his features. And um, Deborah Caprioglio most certainly is uh, a person of note when it comes to um, uh, the figure of uh, an actress that Tinto Brass would hire. Uh, she is what we would call a uh, voluptuous, buxom beauty, similar to actresses from the 1950s or 60s. Think of such folks as Jane Mansfield or Marilyn Monroe or Mammy Van Duran or Sophia Loren. Uh, this woman um, has that type of figure. Um, I would probably say Anita Eckberg may be the closest from the classic age that she reminds me of. However, if you so desire, you can watch this film, Paprika, and you will see what I mean. Since she is in the um, many revealing outfits and undressed in most of the film. Now, the movie takes place years ago. Um, years ago, meaning post World War II. I think it was. I think it actually takes place in 1958. Actually. Uh, Italy has uh, been now 13 years from the end of World War II. Their country had been destroyed. They had lost territory to what is now Slovenia. And they obviously um, were on the losing side. Um, here uh, is, is, is a curiosity because that's the reason I bring up um, Slovenia is because this uh, woman that Deborah Caprioglio plays is from what used to be the Italian territory of Slovenia. So um, she is considered uh, has or has a distinctive look than say some other folk in the film and it's odd accent that they determine and find out that, oh, you are actually from uh, what was and is now Slovenia. 
probably most well-known as the home country of Melania Trump um, today. Um, the movie is a loose adaptation of a novel. Uh, the novel is called Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, or better known as Fanny Hill. Uh, it is a novel by English novelist John Cleland, written around 1748. It was a book that caused an uproar because of its frank discussion of sexual situations. And the movie uh, is not the first adaption of uh, this book. It has been adapted by numerous people in the past, including Ross Meyer in a film entitled Fanny Hill. The story, the novel, and this movie here, Paprika, is basically about a young girl who is the love interest of a young man who uh, the two unfortunately are from a small village and not of the bourgeois class so they are um, lower class or, or not wealthy um, however the boyfriend sees or knows that his uh, girlfriend is a real beauty and most certainly Deborah the actress that plays the leading role is most certainly a 10. Deborah Capriogio, uh she happens to uh, play the girlfriend as I stated her name um, is irrelevant at this time I, I guess like it her name is Mima is what her name is um, but uh, she will be remain renamed later to be called Paprika. But um, what happens is the boyfriend knows that his girlfriend is beautiful and desirable. And so to try to get funds, he wants her to work at a brothel for a couple of weeks. Uh, at this time in Italy, if we um, read uh, the Wikipedias and blogs and whatnot, as well as a uh, conversation by Tinto Brass that I read, um, brothels were legal in Italy at that time. So she becomes uh, uh, an escort or a prostitute, basically, um, and uh, from there she basically becomes a prostitute for the remainder of the film. So her two week as a prostitute turn into a prostitute for years. Now, unlike many films uh, that would have uh, this as a subject, uh, this film is not dark at all. It is probably even more lighthearted than the Julia Roberts film Pretty Woman because it is strictly a comedy and not a ha-ha comedy but um, a cute 
type of comedy, though it is most certainly an adult feature film because of the rampant male and female nudity and sexual situations. So basically, it's really the uh, well. Let me explain what happens. So she becomes um, a prostitute. She does the two weeks, and then she decides to stay on. Um, and her boyfriend, she ch cheated on her in that two-week period, and therefore she dumps him, and that's the reason why she has no issues to continue on, because she is getting revenge, and she's getting money, and it, um, yeah, her lifestyle is has changed uh, pretty good, at least in her eyes, obviously. Uh, such a lifestyle is most certainly not glamorous, but this being a light-hearted comedy, it, um, it generally is in this film. Um, so the Madam of the Brothel gives her a new name uh, called Paprika. I forget exactly the reasons, but it has something to do with... Um, I think maybe her hair and from the part of Slovenia, which at that time had just been given to uh, the Sl Slovenian um, state of Yugoslavia after the end of World War II as uh, a loser in the war. They lost some territory and um, so this woman uh, has left the communist nation of Yugoslavia to be an Italian woman. Um, so uh, she's renamed Paprika after the spice and basically it's her exploits through life five or six year period through the various brothels of Italy because she leaves one and goes to the next and then goes to the next and then eventually comes back to the original and so forth. During that time she becomes friends with various people including males and 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 fellow co-workers. Um, the, as you would gather in this type of film there are um, light-hearted moments. There's not too much uh, infighting between the characters. Uh, there are some Unfortunate things that do occur. Uh, one woman um, that works at the the brothel um, uh, dies. Um, I won't explain why. You should just see the film. Um, it's uh, tragic, though not necessarily uh, a horror type of scene, but it is very tragic. Um, there are scenes of uh, heartbreak and sadness um, but always it goes back to light-hearted fun um, there is one scene uh, where she has to uh, blackmail someone to get out of the situation and it is played out uh, once again uh, very light-hearted uh, even if it is an adult subject matter that is uh, the basis of 
the entire vignette in the movie. Um, not much else to really discuss about the film because again it's really more a character study of this young girl and her life as a prostitute and how and what occurs to her through the the years as she is a prostitute um, she um, it, it, it again since it is a comedy and lighthearted it does end on a high and light note uh, which is which is good um, and I felt that the film uh, was very very different than most midnight movies because usually midnight movies that I've watched are very dark and bleak and and this one is a breath of fresh air it it is a, a, a really good movie um, the acting is actually pretty good for a young actress that really hadn't done any experience prior and it was only in films because of who she knew and how she looked rather than for her classical training which she had none uh, the lead actress does a fabulous job and she is a sweetheart throughout the film and she is very appealing uh, to look at and it's most certainly understandable why she received uh, a claim she did during uh, uh, the, the times that she was uh, a leading lady um, I can't compare it to other Tinto Brass films because I have not seen any of his other films I do have some of his films here that I have not watched yet however this is the first film I ever watched that he directed specifically for the fact that it was rated as his best film by a reviewer that I have faith in meaning uh, the folks at blu-ray.com the disc doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of extras on it but it does have an interesting uh, featurette uh, that that talks about uh, the movie and uh, is worth uh, watching as well um, it does state on the disc that it is new restored high-definition transfer again blu-ray.com felt it didn't pop out however uh, I, I was quite satisfied uh, with uh, the HD transfer of the film uh, final thoughts or information uh, it's re released by Cult Epics. Cult Epics uh, releases a lot of um, uh, art house and foreign films and uh, this is uh, just one of many. Um, the film itself is 116 minutes so it is a fairly long film for a midnight movie and uh, it is um, fairly new in its release too. It's not um, an older movie uh, uh, for a boutique label disc. So I would recommend it, uh, especially for those who enjoy erotic comedies. Um, I think it could probably be a good place to start if you wanted to watch Tinto Brass uh, and his directorial efforts 
since uh, it is uh, highly acclaimed by many folk. Um, so yes, uh, I would give it a thumbs up and it is readily available on any online retail. Uh, the film that I'm going to discuss right now is called Double Exposure. It's a 1983 film, and it is released by the boutique label Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome uh, is a company out of Connecticut, and they do now have a brick-mortar store in Connecticut that you can go to. I believe it's open on weekends or Monday and Saturday or something of that nature, where folks can actually buy almost any boutique label disc of any boutique company that they want. Because uh, Vinegar Syndrome is a curious company. They've not been around that long. However, uh, they are a powerhouse when it comes to remastering films and getting rights to films. And they are continuously at conventions, specifically on the East Coast, uh, selling their wares. Um, the thing that's most important about them is they do a lot of, of their own scanning um, or have people either in-house or directly related to them that do the scanning. So other companies, other boutique labels go to them to have their stuff uh, remastered and brought into HD format and cleaned up and whatnot. Uh, so other companies, whatever boutique label, ABC, has a film that is look, looks uh, needs needs some remastering. Uh, one of the folks they would go to is actually Vinegar Syndrome. So Vinegar Syndrome makes a lot of their money not only by selling uh, their own boutique label discs, but they do a lot of remastering for other companies, boutique labels, and such. Uh, they're an odd company because um, they've gone into a new niche of, I guess, uh, cult films. Um, so what they do now, uh, they're pretty important in the sense that they release four to five films a month, um, mostly Blu-rays, but some not. Uh, some of their discs are pretty good because you can get two movies on them uh, fully remastered. Uh, but uh, the, the thing that's curious is that a handful of those films released each month are actually what we would call adult films, blue films, X-rated films, and such. That may not be for everybody. Uh, so uh, whenever they do their releases, I usually contact them through their email on their website, vinegarsyndrome.com, and ask them which films are not uh, adult films. And when I say adult, I mean X-rated films, uh, because I will uh, only want to purchase those uh, cult films whether they're exploitation or horror or sci-fi or whatever that are not um, adult films. But for them, it has opened up a new niche of uh, fans that would come to buy uh, discs. And oddly, these remastered Vinegar Syndrome films are all available on, on Amazon, even those that are adult rated. Um, now, uh, my opinion, uh, Vinegar Syndrome is one of the better companies out there. Uh, their work are fantastic. Um, a lot of their extras are actually made specifically for the discs, not just carried over from older ports or older 
um, companies releases uh, they actually make a lot of their own uh, extras as well they're just usually loaded with stuff and uh, their presentations are usually fantastic um, also their customer service is great and the kids that work their booths at conventions are uh, very knowledgeable and uh, answer all your questions um, they also have a lot of sales during um, Memorial Day weekend and Thanksgiving weekend where you can usually get half off on a lot of their stuff and some of their older discs are usually discounted um, permanently through various websites that you could buy uh, their movies. Now uh, let me talk about Double Exposure. It's a 1983 film. Um, it's actually a precursor to the 1990s even though it's from 1983. Uh, it's before its time because this is a psychosexual thriller uh, back in the 90s. Uh, a lot of um, erotic thrillers I guess they're called were, were like the big thing. Uh, you could find them everywhere for rental at f places like Blockbuster uh, and Hollywood Video. Uh, they were always played on um, HBO, Cinemax, Star, not Stars, but uh, Showtime or whatever other pay cable network that plays movies many times at night as the, the Skinamax film of the week type of thing. Uh, this film is a precursor to that by at least seven years because its themes remind us of those films. A lot of films from the 90s starred folks like Tanya Roberts or Anita Nitra Ford and various other uh, actresses including Kiss uh, bassist Gene Simmons' wife, uh, I forget her name offhand, but uh, again, a lot of women uh, and actresses made a career out of the erotic thriller. Uh, this film here, once again, is a precursor to that by seven years. Uh, let me read the back jacket of the film, and then we'll talk about the director and some of the people involved. That's uh, what it says. It says, Double Exposure. Michael Callan stars as Adrian Wilde, a prolific photographer whose specialty in shooting nude models for men's magazines. His life starts to unravel when he begins to experience strange and almost lifelike dreams in which he murders the very woman he's been photographing. What's more is that he soon discovers that they might not be dreams after all. Has he started to lose touch with reality? Is he a calculated killer attempting to create an unbelievable alibi? Or is something much more sinister and deadly afoot? Co-starring Joanna Pettit and Seymour Castle and featuring atmospheric scope photography by R. Michael Stringer, Double Exposure is a slick and suspenseful psychological mystery fused with slasher and giallo elements. Inspired by director William Brian Hillman's 1974 film The Photographer, but taking a much darker and more violent approach, Vinegar Syndrome brings this distinctly original horror obscurity to Blu-ray, newly restored from its original 35mm camera negative. Um, now, uh, uh, let's talk about uh, the director first. Uh, he was a former actor that became a writer and director. Uh, did a lot of television and actually co-starred along with some folks like Rock Hudson and Ernest Borgnine in films. Uh, but um, uh, William Brian Hillman, who wrote and directed this film, um, 
is probably his most famous directorial effort besides this is a film called The Photographer, as stated on the back of the jacket, which actually also has Michael Callan in it, and uh, they appear to be fairly good friends. Uh, rumor has it, based off of uh, what was said on commentaries uh, and various other things from the disc and on websites that I read, this was actually supposed to be either a prequel or a reimagining of the film The Photographer, but they changed it in pre-production and decided to make its own film, especially since at this time slasher films were the big hit. Uh, so it is a standalone film. Um, I have not seen The Photographer and don't know much about it otherwise. Uh, Michael Callan, who stars in the film, uh, he is a pretty charismatic guy. Um, oddly, um, his character feels more of a character that you would see as a 70s or mid-70s type of character because he's somewhat of a playboy. Um, uh, the actor itself, though, uh, Michael Callan, uh, was probably most famous for um, the lead, or one of the leads in West Side Story on stage, and he made that role famous. So when the movie came out, he was actually the front runner or the potential lead for the film. However, a unfortunate thing happened, which is the movie companies uh, back in those days, he had contracts with, and he could not break out of his contract, and uh, the company that made West Side Story uh, could not get him as an actor, so his dream was shot, and as a result, he was not able to be the lead. The film went to uh, another actor, uh, I forget the man's name, but uh, the point is a career-defining role from stage to cinema or motion picture uh, was lost to uh, this actor uh, simply for the fact due to contracts. So a film that would have made him possibly a superstar in Hollywood uh, was not to be, and as life sometimes gets in the way, uh, a career that could have been was not. Uh, he did have a successful movie career. Otherwise, it's just, unfortunately, his role or the role of a lifetime uh, did not happen, and his life turned out to be different than what it could have been. But otherwise, he did have a, a great career, otherwise doing uh, many films and television work. Uh, the lead actress, Joanna P P Pettit, uh, she... Uh, was an English actress, uh, though um, here she does not have uh, English accent, so obviously she masked her her uh, accent and could play an American. And uh, her career was interesting as well because she was mostly a t television star, uh, did a lot of roles as lead actress in TV movies, and in the 70s, uh, TV movies were a very big thing. So her career was uh, pretty good as well. Uh, now, for the film itself, uh, Double Exposure, it is a very interesting film. Uh, the main thing that makes it very interesting is for the fact that it predates erotic thrillers by seven years. Uh, this film 
would most certainly fall into that category. However, it is mostly considered a slasher because of uh, the time it was made, 1983. Uh, but again, it also has a lot of giallo elements as well because there is a mask, well, not a necessarily a mask killer, but an unseen killer who wears gloves, which is a very um, uh, known trait for giallos. It's uh, something that almost every giallo has. Uh, giallos being the Italian version of the slasher film, which predates uh, the American slasher or even the Canadian horror film by uh, American director um, uh, called Black Christmas. Uh, so uh, giallos are a well-known subgenre of slasher that uh, had a lot of influence on the, the more well-known uh, American slasher. Um, or at least well-known in, in the States. Um, now, uh, the film is curious because it has uh, an interesting thing about um, the, the, um, the credits. Because during the credit sequence, it has this odd, um, like, stop-motion type of thing. Think of a... Uh, strobe lights, I guess, and how that works, and that's how the credits go. So it's trying to obviously state that our lead character, the photographer, may be a little off, uh, though that this, again, may just be a red herring, but at least it, it gives us that feeling. And it was very interesting how it was done. Um, I have to state that the back jacket of the film is somewhat wrong. Uh, as we stated, the back jacket states that uh, this man is a nude photographer for adult magazines, which is not true at all. He is actually a photographer of many things. He does art. He does uh, action things like sporting events. He does um, advertisements, um, but also, as all photographers do, or at least photographers that uh, I'm familiar with have all done nude modeling photography as well, or glamour modeling, I guess it would be called. And this man is no different than that. So um, stating that he does nude photography for men's magazines is not true. Uh, however, on a back jacket of an exploitation midnight movie, uh, stating so, obviously is more uh, interesting than simply stating a photographer uh, or a photographer that does advertising. Um, so um, how, the, how the film goes, basically our photographer um, is a little off, um, as you can gather. He has um, dreams that are very, um, I guess, disturbing. Uh, some would even say maybe misogynistic. Um, he unfortunately dreams about people he knows, a woman uh, that he photographers for um, the magazines or for uh, the advertisements or even just friends that happen to be women and he uh, or even has affairs with. He dreams of them where he then goes off and happens to kill them. Um, and they appear very real to us, the viewer, but then he wakes up and we go, okay, we know it's uh, not so.
Um, however, it unfortunately happens that some of the people he actually does have these dreams about uh, do indeed um, die. Uh, and when I say die, I mean are murdered. And also another interesting thing is a string of um, prostitutes in the area. And I assume this is L.A. Uh, based off of um, the locales. Um, also, a string of prostitutes happen to uh, be uh, victims of murder as well, and they may all be connected. Um, a couple of other things of note. Um, there's two police officers, uh, Sergeant Buckhold, played by someone named David Young, not familiar with, and um, Sergeant Fontaine, played by Pamela Hensley. Pamela Hensley uh, was probably mostly well known as uh, the princess from uh, Buck Rogers in the 20th century. Uh, it was a great television show, or 25th century, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Uh, she played Princess Ardella, or the co-lead of that television show that I enjoyed to, uh, immensely as a kid. Um, so that's where she's known for the most. Um, there's a, a number of other uh, supporting actors of note as well, but uh, back to the, the story itself. Uh, there's a brother of the photographer uh, named um, uh, BJ, and his he's played by a guy named James Stacy, who is actually uh, an actor that has um, uh, been uh, injured in real life, where he has an arm and a leg missing. And um, they uh, play this in the film, and uh, he's actually had a pretty damn good career, even with this injury. Um, so um, um, I was curious um, because he, he they hide it well at first, and then suddenly you find out that he's actually, um, I, I guess I don't know, uh, amputee. I guess is, is what it's called, and. Um, uh, he's actually a pretty good actor as well, and he plays the brother of the lead character. Um, but either way, the mystery is, we uh, it's almost like a character study of our main character, the photographer, uh, seeming to break down, and then possibly he being the actual uh, murderer of not only these various prostitutes throughout the city, but also the folks that he happens to know and work with. And his psychiatrist, because he does go to a psychiatrist, he's, he's, he's at least, um, he's generally a decent guy, so he, he's, he's obviously trying to get help. Um, the psychiatrist actually at one point even believes that maybe he is guilty. And there's a good chance he may be. I mean, this is one of the big twists. I mean, this is how giallos and slashes work, or, or even erotic thrillers, or just thrillers in general. And uh, when the psychiatrist speaks with fellow psychiatrists, he mentions that being a doctor, I can't break my oath, but there happens to be a patient of mine that may actually be uh, an individual that has caused crimes, meaning murder. Um, and uh, that that's a little side plot that, that goes on for a bit. Uh, obviously, we do have the, the police procedural part, as I mentioned, uh, the cops trying to figure out uh, who and why these things are happening. And then, of course, we have 
um, our photographer's brother and his main girlfriend, because he does have other girlfriends throughout the film, uh, but his main girlfriend, played by Joanne Pettit, uh, it appears she and the brother are trying to help him as best as they can. And it's, it's interesting, too, because the character generally um, lives a normal and fairly uh, exciting life. Uh, and it's only in the middle of the night or actually at a couple of times, uh, you know, a daytime um, nap when he has these dreams that everything goes wrong. Um, and so that's, that's where, I guess, the, um, the suspense comes from uh, in this film. Now, now, the film is very curious uh, because, I mean, the ending generally turns out to be um, I mean, there's twists and whatnot, but I mean, it's nothing uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily spectacular, um, because it's generally okay. Yeah, I can see that's that's what would have happened, or or this is what would happen. Um, but to get there is is interesting because there's a lot of things. It, this film may have rewatch value because when things do line up at the end that you may have not necessarily caught or thought until it actually happens at the end, that the film could have rewatch value, especially for the fact that um, uh, hints and things of that nature appear after the fact. Um, because obviously we have the, the glove killer, uh, we have uh, the, the, the man having breakdowns, we have women that uh, are either angry at him or want to move ahead in business, you know, modeling, whatnot. So, you, you know, there could be many people who are at fault, but since he is not necessarily an unreliable narrator, he's definitely an um, individual that has, has some, some psychological problems that he's at least getting help for that things happen throughout the film that you may miss during the first watch. Um, so if, if you do like the film, um, you'll get a lot out of it with a second watch, for sure. Um, the film itself um, has some interesting kills. That no, it's not very graphic for a slasher film because it's really more of a psychological thriller or erotic thriller, as I stated. Um, erotic in the sense that there is um, uh, copious amounts of nudity by a number of the women, uh, nothing graphic or, or or anything you know that would would not be standard for any R-rated film or. But it is um, uh, has those elements and and therefore it it brings in a, a um, what I would call an, a large. Um, uh, midnight movie crowd that would want to see this film because it does have uh, thriller elements. It does have uh, interesting kills, if not graphic. It does have the, the copious amount of uh, female nudity, and it does have twists and turns and everything that you would see in a midnight film. So uh, the final thoughts is uh, the film is uh, definitely worth checking out. Uh, if you like slasher films or thrillers, uh, this one uh, is pretty good. 
Uh, it has everything you would want in a, uh, a midnight movie or a cult film. And it uh, does have an a interesting rewatch value for the fact that uh, things do appear after or on a second viewing that would uh, make you know that oh that's the reason why uh, this happened and why I um, didn't see it the first time and so forth uh, so um, uh, definitely worth checking out and uh, readily available uh, everywhere online where discs are sold. Thank you once again t for listening to Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews Volume 5. Uh, sorry that this one came out about 15 days later than the usual time frame that they come out. I uh, would appreciate if folks would email and let uh, me know uh, how you think of the podcast or just uh, comments to read. Uh, this month, unfortunately, we did not get any uh, comments or emails. Uh, I do want to let folks know that there will be a big article, about 3,000 words, um, that I wrote uh, about this podcast for um, an upcoming magazine uh, called, I think it's called Fiendish. Uh, it's being released by David Koning. Uh, folks may know him as the editor of Pernicious Invaders, a horror anthology that you can get on Amazon. But also, uh, of note, he does uh, reviews and artwork and also um, uh, YouTube videos. And he's actually the individual that's doing the artwork for Death Scort 2 the VHS special release. Uh, so folks may uh, want to keep their eye out for that. Uh, when the article does uh, arrive, I will let folks know and uh, how you can get the article and so forth. But um, w that's pretty much all there. Uh, unfortunately, this episode only had five topics to discuss. Uh, the reviews went a little longer than I expected, about 20 to 25 minutes each. Uh, so uh, I wasn't able to get the six one in. Otherwise, we would have got a, a very long podcast. And it's about two hours as it is now. Uh, but either way, uh, come back next month for a new episode of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. Also, You Know Nothing, Jon Snow, a Game of Thrones podcast is re-debuting uh, mid-July. So uh, come listen to us on that podcast. And then, of course, Dark Discussions podcast, which is a weekly podcast. I am on that as well. All these can be found on Dark Discussions Podcast Feed, which is on Google, iTunes, and Stitcher. Uh, Google Play, that is. And you can also look for Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews on Google Play, iTunes, or Stitcher as well, if you just prefer to listen to this podcast. Uh, so, once again, thank you very much, and we will talk to you next time. Do you like things that go bump in the night, bump, bump in the Really?